This week it's back into the book. We have a bit of a quick review of Graham's new series, Ancient Apocalypse, on Netflix. And then we deep dive back into the book. And we finally got through the Sumerian section. And we moved on to the mines. And the rabbit holes never end with this stuff. It only gets deeper. Like, like we like to say around here, we're eight miles deep. The torch doesn't work. We don't even know where we are anymore. So we just have to keep going. Enjoying doing this. Don't know if we're going to get it finished by the end of the year, but we'll have a crack. Have at least one more crack at it before the end of the year. To the new listeners, welcome. To the old listeners, thank you. Remember on Patreon, Unlocking the Code. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Unlocking the Code. Give us a like, give us a follow. I think we're going to stick with the Toxify, because again, that's not a song you hear. I like it. We're going to roll with it for the minute. Thanks very much, guys. Look after yourselves, be kind, be cool, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Suffocate with suffocated daily making all bubble Subtle is the cuddle of the snake that squeezes Hate to see this matrix seizes Maybe we just need to pull the plug Drain the system poison out of body You've been probably overdosing most of life And never noticed the beloved of the cups And come and toast and no one's up and no emotion in this dimension here We work all day and is there always a thinking crystal clear Everything we do revolves around the dollar count It's all around us, all the ground We're falling down and knocks you out Get off the couch, it's all think out The type of flame will cause you cancer Dropping houses all around us Got your spouses, got your house You call the council, got no answers Evolving out in small amounts It's all we have, it's all planned out For our defeat, water down the modern man And bottle love. So we have no intuition of a vision That it's all corrupt
beyond waking up to the people we need to be. 2004. Beat by Cumulus. Great electrical energy. I feel, I feel connected to all living things, to flowers, to some special spirit, and even to some great unseen living force. Living force. Mate, EFS 150,000.2. You need to listen <laughs> because tonight is the night. We're going to go deep, and we don't know how far we're going to get, but we're going to go. We're just going to go. We're, we're going to go deep go. deep into it. Well, I wanted the no articles this week. I just no wanted articles. no articles. Almost straight into the book. Straight into the book. Just want but, to... Graham. Nilly. Graham. Graham. Graham did it again, man. <clears throat> how good was that? How good Thank was you, that? Graham. And I love the fact how he looked at sites that aren't mainstream. Yeah. Some of those sites I hadn't oh, heard I of. I hadn't heard of them. But he's adding, he's adding more, more evidence more and to more. the pile. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? You know what's really good? So you guys haven't done much research on these. Like, I, I could do the Great Pyramid of Giza. I could do Puma Punku. I could yeah. do good classic ones. the classics. Yeah. But I'm not going to because, you know what? There's more there's that more. ties this together. There's more. And, there's, and, the, and it just the evidence mounts and mounts and mounts and mounts. Right. And the flood myth, the the recurring flood myth. We're going to get a, actually a uh, one of the. I've got a Nordic myth guy coming on, and I'm talking. I'm it's it's Northern Europe somewhere. I'm talking to Wednesday morning uh, when we've recorded this, and yeah, we're going to get the Nordic flood myth to add to the next myth that is in just the endless, another myth, just another one. It's exactly the same as all the rest of them. You that know, has like, a flood myth, and and excellent. I love the use of the new technology. It made me think about. We just need a drone with a lidar. Now, if any listeners have got ground a, penetrating radar, I see. Oh, so yeah, so if any listeners have got about a spare thirty grand, uh, and they want to donate it to UTC, is that a nice? Is that is that the cheapest? I would assume they are expensive. More no, expensive. no, the drone. The drone's about the one you want's about nine. How big does it have to be? It's a big spider. It's a big, it's a big spider. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about, now you it's know, a, you know you're a drone pilot. Yeah, it's about ten grand for that, and then I think it's about ten grand for the camera. And I think yeah, a good a good grand penetrating radars aren't that expensive. A good one, like a, just a walk behind one, uh, or a carrying one. You know, but yeah, say so thirty grand. If call it fifty. If we were to get a drone <laughs> of that size, you know, we're gonna like hook stuff to it and like. See if we can drop things from it. Well, no, that's the whole maybe, idea. Maybe even that's... mount a gun to it or something. No, that's like... the whole idea. They have a full attachment kit. That's this this M six hundred. Yeah, it's Pro, a it's a carrier. It's a it's what that's what it does. It yeah. carries photo lenses, man. Like yeah. it's like, yeah. But I thought, just yeah, just that big spider thing. Just hook it up, and the thing is, it's see, got like a. I want a rope. I want to see like how much it can lift me. Yeah, <laughs> probably can to take you away. Hopefully it does, uh, but you know that's one of the first things we're doing. Yeah, we're going to test. We have tested all out. <laughs> got a, got a wool. You're all right. It's a bit of a had a, just had an attack. I can just say you just got attack, mate. But, but spider drone. But we yeah. So yeah, just to spare. Look, call it fifty. Yeah, we, we let's start well. there. Let's start, start there. If let's... we get a donor for fifty, 
We definitely won't piss it up the wall. No. We will definitely buy a drone with a and try and lift each other and then buy a lighter <laughs> if we don't wreck that drone. <laughs> no, but no, look, he's, again, the sites that he mentioned that I hadn't actually, the Bimini Road one was very fascinating and I didn't actually know that the the, the map had the Bimini Road on the map. That was an addition. I'd, I'd, I'd never seen, seen I'd, but see, guys, the Bimini I'd Road. The, and I'd seen the map with that little thing on the island. We've looked at the we've map. We've done episodes map. on we've the map. We've done episodes on the map. We've seen the map. But we never, because we didn't know yeah. about the location, mm. we didn't realize that, yeah, there was that section, that island that actually shows the, the Bimini Road yeah. on the top of it. Yeah. It looks very similar. It looks very similar. Like, it's hard not to, what I don't get about a lot of this stuff is that, you know, the, the the experts, as Graham said, how much did he give shit to archaeology? Oh, no, he did. <laughs> he stood his ground. He just, he just, I think he... Look, he's had enough, I think. He's been attacked for 30 years. So, you know, you can imagine that the dude might have had a bit of enough by now. Well, that's it. But he's also stood up to it. Yeah. So he's developed strategies. And the evidence just keeps being proven over and over and more exactly. and more and more. Because all Graham did over eight episodes was give me more information and... At the same time, just give me another 10 layers mm-hmm. to join those dots together. So yeah. yeah, for those that haven't watched the Netflix Ancient Apocalypse thing, you need to watch it. It's been in the top two Netflix shows globally for like the last two weeks. So that's actually a really good thing, I think, to spread that, look, we are a species with amnesia. You know, I think that was one of the first sentences we said on this podcast over nearly six years ago, right? And we are. All that's happened between then and now is the amount of research that's been done at UTC and then also from all the other independent researchers that are thick and fast on the ground now, just extending that line of information and interpretation. And it's it's obvious that it's a story, man. This is what happened. They're telling us what happened, right? And I think, you know, this EFS stuff, that's why I want to keep going with the Sumerian stuff, I'm finding this very fascinating. Like, where does this gonna? Where is it? Where's Max gonna take us? Yeah, uh, yeah. What's gonna follow this? That's what I'm getting at. And, like, but this is the most detail he's gone into as well. Oh, so, definitely. Well, mate. Without further ado, uh, have you got the time there? So we're gonna we're gonna we're trying something new. Zero mistakes, of course. Uh, we're just gonna do some reading blocks. I'll crack on, mate. I'm feeling the flow. Yeah, you punch on in, mate. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Uh, no spasms. You'll be right. However, yeah, we're going to deep dive into this book. See if we can get it smashed out. Because I want to see where Max is going to take us. All right, here we go. So we finished. We we're still deep into the Sumerian story. Okay, and we are we ended talking about uh, Egypt being divided, and the last sentence before we start again was, "But soon the conflicts began to escalate until the earth was plunged into all-out war." Go, timer has started. Down the downfall of kings. By around 2200 BC, various settlements and territories had been established and with them, various disputes had broken out amongst the Anunnaki. In 2123 BC, these dates, I the one question I have is about the dates. 
the dates is interesting. I'm not too sure. I want to know where the numbers come from, but we'll just let's just tell the story. Terah had a son named Imbrum, the biblical Abraham, and ten years later, Enlil handed control of the lands of Shem to Nana, and a capital was established for the new empire at Ur. Overall control of Sumer was given to Ur-Namu, who then ascended to the throne, was named protector of Nippur, but in 2096 BC, ur was killed in battle. The people of Ur greatly mourned his loss and saw it as a betrayal of Anu and Enlil. Shugli was next to ascend to the throne of Ur, and at first he worked greatly to strengthen the old ties with the house of Anu, but eventually he was to fall under the charms of Inanna and became her lover. Soon Shugli exchanged the city of Lhasa to the Elamites in exchange for foreign military services, and a new unrest swept across the lands. Princes loyal to Marduk, 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 then we went with Marduk. Marduk marched towards from marched northward from Thebes. They were led by Marduk's son, Mentuhotep Min, Min, I, who was also gaining further supporters of his father's cause in Western Asia as he marched. Nana ordered Shugli to send his Elamite troops in to suppress the uprisings and unrest in the Canaan Empire. So the Elamites pushed forward, pushed, pushed forward eventually reaching as far as the gateway to the Sinai Peninsula and the Anunnaki spaceport. I want to know where the Sinai Peninsula is. I wonder if there's any megalithic stuff around there. Because there's a spaceport hiding around there somewhere. Mm, there's uh, something on, yeah. Well, I'm, leave it with Yeah, me. I was going to say, I'm talking for 20, so maybe that's what we can do. We can do that. But in 2048 BC, Shugli was also to die in the battle. Marduk then moved to the land of the Hittites, and Ibram was sent to Canaan with elite troops to serve in a position of a peacekeeper. The next year, Amar-Sin, the biblical Amraphel, ascended to the throne of Ur, while Ibram went to Egypt, where he stayed for five years before returning to Canaan with further troops. For long, Amar-Sin was under the beguiling influence of Inanna, who guided him in forming a coalition of eastern kings. Amar Sin then launched a military incursion to gain control of the Sinai, but the coalition forces, led by an Elamite called Kador Laoma, were blocked by Abraham at the entrance to the spaceport. Three years later, Amar Sin was replaced as king by Shu Sin. However, it was already clear that the empire was beginning to disintegrate. Nine years later, Shu Sin was also replaced by Ibi Sin, but by this time, many of the Western provinces were becoming increasingly loyal to Marduk. Marduk had not been idle in his absence and had been working in secret, gathering support for his cause for many years. And by 2024 BC, he reasoned that he was finally in a position to regain the control he felt he so deserved. Gathering all his followers and loyal supporters, he marched on Sumer and took up the throne at Babylon, declaring himself as supreme ruler over earth and endowing himself upon the new title of Ra. Enki begged his son to rethink his actions. But Ra, or Marduk, then removed Nibiru's name from the creation epic, Enuma Elish, to be replaced by his own as the ultimate creator of all. He created a new 10-month calendar, taught his followers to follow the cycles of the sun, and declared himself to be the lord of all. He also had the image of his brother Thoth removed from the Sphinx and replaced it with that 
of his slain son, Azar, but he went too far when he declared his sons to be worthy of lifespans provided by a trip to the place of everlasting years and partaking of the food and drink of Nibiru, then declared the Sinai Peninsula spaceport to be the Duat, the gateway to heaven for all those loyal to him. Yes. I'll so. pause you there for a second, my friend. The wiki tells me that usually regarded as being geographically part of Asia, the Sinai Peninsula is the northeastern extremity of Egypt and adjoins Israel and the Gaza Strip on the east. So it's the section of desert that's between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. Is okay. what it is. That's yep. where it's located. Um, Which there's plenty of megalithic stuff around there. There were there were a lot of sites when I when I looked it up. Where was it? I wonder if we've got a big platform here. somewhere. Pharaoh's Island, Kalat Al Gindi, Serabit El Kadim, Wada Wadi Maghare. Yeah, right. There's there's a lot of things there. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. More pieces to the puzzle. Elsewhere across the region, the fighting had spread out across to the central Mesopotamia and Ra's forces led by his son Nabu were quickly gaining the upper hand. But when the fighting finally reached as far as the Nippur and the holiest of holies was defiled in the temple there, it began to become too much for Enlil who demanded punishment for Ra and Nabu. Enki desperately opposed the punishment and pleaded for clemency for his son Ra but another of Enki's sons and Ra's own brother Nergal agreed that this time Ra had gone too far and sided with his uncle Enlil. Anu hesitated in his decision, but when Ra's son Nabu began rallying his Canaanite followers in preparation to capture and control the spaceport and it became clear that all would soon be lost, Anu approved the use of the weapon weapons of terror. It's always these weapons, isn't there? Attacks were then launched by Nergal and Ninurta, during which the spaceport and all the errant Canaanite cities were utterly decimated. But it had also been decreed that only those cities that were designated should be obliterated and the people at large must be spared. The weapons they used numbered seven, and Nergal and Ninurta were carefully instructed in their use. Enlil stressed to Ninurta, that Imbrum or Abraham must be spared the destruction and that his line must survive at all cost. In the text, the seven weapons of terror are given names by Nurgle. The first he called the one without a rival. The second, the blazing flame. The third was the one who with terror crumbles. Fourth, the mountain melter. Wow. Fifth, wind that were the rim of the world seeks. Sixth weapon, the one who above and below no one spares. And the seventh weapon was filled with monstrous venom and named the vaporizer of living things. That is a little dramatic. The, the, I mean, we, let's just hang on. I just, so awesome. The mountain melter. Yeah, I just want to go. I'm going to do the names again. I just, I the just, one without rival, the blazing flame, the one who with terror crumbles, the mountain melter, wind that the rim of the world seeks. For some reason, that's my favorite. I know. That's it's so it's, yeah, random. Yeah. The one who above and below, no one spares. Yes. Right? And the one filled with monstrous venom called the vaporizer of living, living things. Beings. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
But see, again, if we're to play the time frame out, this is only what five thousand years ago. So it's like pretty much, yeah. yeah. So that's the. But I mean, isn't it interesting? We always say here the timeline's messed up, and now I'm just questioning this other timeline now as well. Okay, so the vaporizer of living things and the monster, the 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 one who above and below no one spares. No, 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 and and the the wind that the rim of the world seeks. Yeah, <laughs> like what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> then, at a sign from Enlil, Nurgle and Inerta unleashed the terrible power of the mighty weapons upon the targets they had chosen, which were destroyed utterly in the ensuing blasts. In the ensuing blasts, however, the Anunnaki themselves were unaware of the extent of the destruction, and they were about to unleash that they were about to unleash upon the world or of the long-term consequences of their actions. Their main objective had been to quell the fighting once and for all, but within a year, a poisonous and radioactive cloud from the attacks had spread across all of Sumer and right. Egypt, killing thousands. So, the names suggest nuclear. Yeah. The... The the um well, if we un- go- the, the effects, the after-effects mm. suggest nuclear. Mm. Very interesting. They do find, and they have found Trinitite all through that area as well of Sumer and all that sort of stuff where Sumeria yeah. once was. They've found, yeah, Trinitite, which is like the, proxies, yeah, ex- ex- explosion or mm-hmm. impact because mm-hmm. they, it's like like the same yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Well, the Trinitite's the stuff that they named after the Trinity test. Yeah, that's the that's the crystal that they found. Yeah, after the that atom formed bomb. under the heat and pressure of the, the atom bomb, yeah. of the atom bomb. Mm. Continue, my good man. The water over all of Mesopotamia became contaminated. The animal life in the area died out and the soil became barren and lifeless. Soon, the once great civilization of Sumer lay broken and decimated, never to rise again. The stronghold Ra had constructed it. Babibli survived the destruction. Enlil then relinquished dominion of the lands of the first region to Ra and continued the gold operations in the new lands. And so ends the story of the Sumerians. It is not stated in the text why the Anunnaki never returned to rebuild their civilization, nor if they ever planned to return again. It would in some ways seem that they preferred to wash their hands of the whole affair and simply leave man to his own devices. But then things may not always be what they seem at first glance. They really are, Max. They really are, mate. Now, notwithstanding the fact that what has just been related to us sounds something like a science fiction meets Genesis versus the sun god. (laughs) Uh, This ancient Sumerian tale seems to be an awfully detailed account of a planetary and genetic creation and massive wars that contain a striking number of recognisable biblical references and an extraordinary amount of recently discovered scientific information for a tale written on clay tablets from a civilization around 6,000 years ago from people who weren't supposed to know about the Giza Valley complex in Egypt or about things like the 24-strand DNA tree with its serpentine shape or about genetic engineering, space travel, weapons of mass destruction, radiation fallout, the asteroid belt, advanced astronomy, the mysterious face on Mars, or the fact that seawater contains the world's largest gold deposits, if only we knew how to extract it. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. 
I think we got – I love how Max has done this to us, right, because he's coming back around to the keys because we just got lost in a tail and there was mud wrestling and naked oil wrestling and stuff. Um, but he's bringing us back to what we've actually read and learned. He's – so, so like, yeah, he's tying together the important parts mm. of what we, we need mm. to be remembering out mm. of that tale. Mm. And I just had a – so I didn't have this – realization till just then okay so fravor fravor's experience mm-hmm. tic-tac mm-hmm. thing under the water these tic-tacs and all these things all over the globe yep so the most amount of gold comes from the oceans mm-hmm. what is the thing that's under the oceans is mining the gold yeah and the tic-tacs it, are just surveying they're just mining like drones processing plants yeah they're just mining or filtering gold out of the ocean because obviously we would be able to do it, but it's about under our social structure. It's about being able to do it profitably. Yes. And it's about being able to do it efficiently. Yeah. And without poisoning, destroying everything, the ocean, because you've got to, well, and the, you've got to try and extract the gold and then yeah, but take see, the seawater back. Yeah. Cause we're still explosion based monkeys, right? That's, you know, we've got to pull, push three dimensional stuff. Oh, if you're, if you're just vibrating it through element 115 and sending it through another dimension and coming back and it ends up a gold bar, then yeah, 100%. It's a lot more efficient, a lot cleaner. Mm, that's interesting. But, um, but yeah, see, like, well, we look, we extract gold from ore. From like the ore that it's mixed in, and we're um we're using all sorts of nasty ass chemicals. Oh yeah, we accelerate the process. You know, like out with of the mercury yeah, and yeah, yeah. all the like we got tailings dams and yes. shit where we put all the shit we can't deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're well, if you're that treating used to be the ocean, job. you know that used to be. Yeah, I was in the yeah. gold mines. You so know, if you're treating the ocean, you can't. You can't. Our processes aren't refined enough. No, to do it either. No, we we're not. We yeah. would have poison oceans. That's worse right. than what they already are. <laughs> well, yeah. All right, that's interesting. Because he is right, you know. I just maybe we just uh, uh, where are we? So yeah, uh, I just want to do that again. Just now, go back to now, notwithstanding yeah, now, the fact, not, yeah, that that what has been just just been related to us sounds like something of like science fiction. Fiction meets Genesis versus the Sun God. This ancient Sumerian tale seems to be an awfully detailed account of planetary and genetic creation and massive wars that contains a striking number of recognisable biblical references and an extraordinary amount of recently discovered scientific information. For a tale written on clay tablets from a civilization around 6,000 years ago from people who weren't supposed to know about the Giza Valley complex in Egypt or about things like the 24-strand... There you go, there it is strand DNA tree with its serpentine shape or about genetic engineering, space travel, weapons of mass destruction, radiation fallout, the asteroid belt, advanced astronomy, the mysterious face on Mars, or the fact that seawater contains the world's largest gold deposits, if only we knew how to extract it. And again, I ask you to remember, and I cannot stress this point enough, that this remarkable story did not spring from some science fiction writer's pen, but from clay tablets written by the ancient Sumerians 6,000 years ago. As a point of interest, have you ever noticed that the modern medical symbol for the two serpents intertwined around a dagger is an accurate depiction of DNA? The same symbol that has been used since ancient times, and yet DNA has only been has only recently been discovered. The pure fact such a symbol 
was chosen indicates that the information was likely once known, but now, but somehow forgotten in the intertwined symbol that was adopted. The use of that particular design by the medical profession still today is far too great a coincidence to be lightly dismissed. Even when the, even the choice of the serpents is suggestive of Enki. Why use a serpent? Why not use a vine? And what was a massive part of oh, yeah, the Graham's serpent. thing? Was it's, all the serpent. Serpent. it's always a serpent. Yeah, exactly. It's always a serpent. Yeah. There is a great deal more to the Sumerian story, but a full account of the tale would fill this entire book. Please understand that the story, as it has just been presented to you, is in a paraphrased and condensed form taken from translations of a 6,000-year-old Sumerian tablets as presented to us by Zachariah Sitchin. I highly recommend reading Sitchin's books, The Earth Chronicles, for a far more detailed and comprehensive version. I find it to be quite remarkable that the Sumerian text mentions the construction of a huge landing beacon in the Nile Valley on such an old text. In the Sumerian account, the beacon named Enkura, which means the house that, like a mountain, is, is, I believe, the first mention of any construction in the Nile Valley that appears in any histories. As the texts abundantly show, the story of Adam being created from the clay of the ground, as well as Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden after their encounter with the serpent and the discovery of sex, also has its roots in a Sumerian story detailing with a confrontation between Enlil and Enki that erupted when Enki gave Adamu race the ability to procreate. This sexual ability is why the race was removed from the Eden facility. There have not been any Sumerian texts found of the actual moment of expulsion as yet, but a picture that has survived is interesting. It shows the confrontation between the Lord God Enlil depicted on the right and the serpent God depicted on the left and offering a forbidden fruit of the tree of life. Oh, yeah. God sells stuff again. Mm. Yeah. As Sitchin points out, what makes this depiction particularly interesting is it writes out in archaic Sumerian as the star and the triangle symbol resembling the god's epithet name. The star spells God, and the triangular symbols mean reads bur, buru, or buzur, buzur, all terms that make the epithet name mean God who solves secrets, God of the deep minds, and the variations thereof. In the Bible, in the, Bible, in the original Hebrew, calls the God who tempted Eve, Nakash, which has been translated as serpent, but the literal translation of Nakash may also means he who solves secrets and he who knows metals. It was a wisdom thing to do with the snake, wasn't it, as well, right? It's like the... The connections are clear. This depiction is actually of a particular interest because it shows the serpent god with his hands and feet in tethers, suggesting that Enki may have been arrested after his unauthorized deed. Like, that's a, it's a bit of a stretch, but I, I can sort of see. Uh, in his anger, Enlil ordered the expulsion of Adam, the home, the home sapiens earthling, from the Eden, the abode of the righteous ones. As previously mentioned, one of Enki's epithets was he who solves secrets, thereby further identifying him as the biblical Nakash, the serpent. Sitchin also did very well, did well in verifying many of the Sumerian locations as mentioned in the text. For example, he reasoned that both the pre oh, there we go, the pre and post-diluvial flight paths were actually at 45 degrees to the 30th parallel 
that if certain landmarks that the text suggested really were the points that were used to triangulate the landings, and that if seven vital control centers lay along the flight path, as, as the text also suggested, then locating them and actual landing pad at SIPA should be reasonably straightforward and logical affair. Well, I'm fascinated to see where we go, but it's your turn, sir. Do you want to take a grab the mouth? Grab the con. You have the con, sir. All right. I just want to mention, too, and I didn't want to like break the flow, but you've just sort of been moving professional mic booms around and nothing happens man yeah You've just been like spinning no, it around it's been it's been lovely yeah just yeah it's it's there's no noise there's yeah. no nothing it's excellent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh logical affair straightforward and yeah. logical affair all right take us away sir hang on a second i just gotta oh, hang on gotta reset, reset reset the rocket clock oh we are love technology it's already reset oh just said keep going all right Sitchin indeed succeeded in locating all of the sites for the seven centres along the pre-diluvial flight path as his own diagrams show, and then also located all the facilities along the post-diluvial flight path. And lo and behold, at the exact point of the triangle where the post-diluvial spaceport is said to have been, we find the ruins of Baalbek, with its huge cyclopean stone platform of ancient and completely unknown origin that local legends tell us was built by the gods. Did we not? We did. We were already looking. He was. He's, he's, he's in the room. <laughs> the evidence Sitchin has also provided to substantiate the claims made by the Sumerian texts is substantial to the point of being overwhelming, and I have little doubt that the events the Sumerians describe proves in this author's opinion that the scenario Sitchin purports will one day be accepted as solid fact. And there is also the 6,000-year-old Sumerian account of the death of Alalu or Lamu, Mars, to consider. We are told of him being placed in a cave beneath a mountain and of the Anunnaki carving the mountain into the likeness of his face, wearing an eagle mask or a space helmet. Gazing skyward, could that be the real explanation of the enigmatic face on Mars, the unusual surface feature in the Sidonia region? Though heavily eroded, certainly does not look natural in any way at all either in the first Viking satellite photograph or in the more recent ones. Yeah, but see, there's been more recent ones. Oh, there you go. It's the flight path. So Along the Tigris, the Euphrates, yep, yep. And see, the, the, the immediate thing that I say with the, the face on Mars is that they took more detailed photos and it looks like a heap of mountains. However, we also know for sure that they uh, they mess with the pictures that they come out. Like NASA people have come out and said yeah. that they doctor photos. Like, you know, and they're not, I think I've said before with the Mars pics, I haven't seen many recently, actually. They they fell out of my feed. However, uh, probably about one out of 20 mm. was very interesting. Yeah. The other ones were like, oh, you can see a structure here. I'm like, yeah, listen. I'm, I'm amazed by the things that some people are able to see. Yeah. Because I don't pick up. Yeah, I'm the same as what you are, man. It's it's low. Yeah. The percentage, the strike rate is low. Look, I've looked at probably... I don't know, a thousand photos of Mars. So, you know, that means that there's 
probably 50 or 60 that are very, very interesting, um, which is more than enough to... Oh, 100%. And, you know, the like the, the measurements from Mars is an interesting one too, how some measurements from Mars work here, but they don't work on Earth. Like there's some of that stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I believe, I think it might be the Royal Cubit, mm. actually. Mm. Might be some, it might be. I don't know, I'm stretching my brain. Mm. That's okay, keep going, man. Especially strange is the perfectly edged helmet and the way station that is said to have existed in the vicinity. Could this explain the strange pyramidal shapes nearby that look like purpose, purposely laid out structures? Maybe not. But the fact that the ancient Sumerians seem to know of and mention such features is interesting nonetheless. So there's the old yeah, Mars the, face, yeah. perfectly outlined helmet. Yeah, and there's the the structures to the and then there's the structures. They do look pyramidal in nature, uh, in shape. And don't like, forget especially about the, that, one that one from this angle. From that angle definitely looks like looks a pyramid. pretty good. And don't forget, you know, Teotihuacan looked like a hill down the road. Yes, exactly. So before we excavated it. Hmm. All right, moving on. And there is another surprising little artifact of some interest, again presented to us by Sitchin. This comes in the form of an ancient coin that has survived from Byblos, a city that lies on the Mediterranean coast of Lebanon in the Mesopotamian area, the, bi- the biblical city of Gabal. The coin depicts the Temple of Ishtar, which was originally the landing place constructed in the Cedar Mountains for Anu's visit. In this ancient rendition of the temple, we are shown a grand temple with a large courtyard behind it. In the courtyard, we see a platform that looks as though it has been reinforced by cross members. The courtyard area has a large wall around it, forming an enclosure that can be reached by a wide staircase and a large conical-shaped object sits on the reinforced platform dominating the engraving. In all honesty, the depiction on the coin really does look very remarkably like a rocket ship sitting on a launch pad. Does this engraving show us the ruins that still remain at Baalbek? Is this coin an actual depiction of the huge cyclopean platform reached by that monumental staircase as it used to be as it used to once be? If it needed to be robust enough for a launch pad, as the te- text suggests, it would certainly help account for why it was built as a 13 metre high, 88 by 48 metre wide platform using 300 tonne blocks and why it may have been necessary to incorporate those 800 tonne blocks into the retaining wall. Yes, I think it would make sense to do that there is here we the, go here's the coin the, well okay there's something sitting on a platform there's a conical definitely a conical shape looks like it's sitting on a platform potentially it's interesting it's very interesting and there's there's also the um oh well we're into the mire cool there's also the um why did they build such a massive platform right mm-hmm why did they do that why they do that? It is, yeah. a, I mean, and if you're going to, you wouldn't, okay, let's think about it mechanically. The only reason you build such a large platform 
is so you can actually so something can be sat on top of it. Right? Yeah. What do you if that's your base, what in the bloody hell are you putting on top? That that mm. needs to that your base needs to be that strong. Yeah. Right. And you need to use magical technology that nobody understands. Yeah. Right. They're absolutely massive, those blocks. They're the you know, that's that's the uh pregnant woman stone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those. I mean, even we've we've looked at the pictures here in the megalithomania stuff that the even the blocks that are small there are massive. Yeah. And then yeah. you've got the Roman stuff on top of it. The Roman stuff on top, yeah. Which is still quite which massive. is very impressive. However, there's definitely a, a change. But yeah, nowhere near the same. Mm. So it all makes sense. All right, we're going to finish off on the Sumerians now. So this That's is the cool. last little bit. The claims made by Sitchin in his translations of the ancient Sumerian texts are remarkable to say the least. And the fact that these same stories were edited and condensed to produce the Christian tale of Genesis may come as a real shock to many of those in of a religious nature. Yet we can see that the connections are obvious. But could this tale be true? Can the story they tell of ancient gods from another planetary body with a vast elliptical orbit be in any way verified? The tale describes a race called the Anunnaki and says that their quest on this planet was the attainment of gold to protect the eroding atmosphere on their own planet. Could it be true? In an attempt to find answers of these questions, we must first look to another enigmatic culture. Yeah. And now we're coming to the, the Mayans. And this is chapter 10. Chapter 10. I'm just going to quickly have a little scroll. That's okay. Because we'll, we're doing it cold. Yeah. We're into a whole new book, guys. Yeah. So this whole is now, chapter. we're now into and I the don't Aztec know, I don't know, know the Mayan. The oh, Mayan. sorry, Mayan yeah, And story. I don't really know the Mayan story. I mean, the whole gold thing, I'm interested to see what he says about the Mayan, but we can't, our obsession with gold and where is the gold? Someone tell me where the, like I said the other day, the Aussies don't know where 80 pallets of gold are. No one's seen the gold. Yep. Where's the gold, right? Where is all the gold? Tell me that. Yeah. Show me a so, photo. Mm. You don't have to tell me where it is. I just need to see a photo. Of all the gold. Yes. Where is it? That'd and, be easy to make, though. Yeah, it would so, be. Man, photos just don't cut it that much they anymore. They don't anymore, do they? You can't. Buggers. Um, it's just, it's one of those, we're in it, it's a problem now. You know, it would have been good be to show a photo of gold to someone 50 years ago. Well, the thing is, think about it, this is a little bit of a disturbing thought. There's enough of our, mine and your voices on the internet that they could yeah, they can deep fake us. They can make us say anything. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's a scary thought. Thanks just, for that. <laughs> Sheesh. Is that much stuff on the internet? All right, brother. I have eight minutes. Eight minutes. Take me eight minutes of my. Hang on, and then something just. Oh, oh hang on, hang on. Sneeze up the nose. I don't know much about the Maya. I'm actually very interested to see where we end up with the Maya. The sneeze is still... Oh. Me too. Me too. And I'm back. Let's rock and roll. If you headbutt the microphone, I will laugh. <laughs> the story of the Maya. The mysterious Mayan civilization existed in South America from somewhere before 500 BC 
evolving through the Olmecs, the Toltecs, the Mayans, and the Aztecs, who held power over the lands until the arrival of the Spanish. A complete rundown of the history of the Maya is not required for the purposes of this work. However, brief history is in order. Like that of ancient Egypt, the civilization of the Mayans is one of the is one that seems to have sprung full blown into existence. There is no period of development. Suddenly it was just there. Though unfortunately, there exists now only very little information at all about the actual civilization due to the brutal irresponsible acts committed by the Spanish conquistadors under the callous leadership of Hernando Cortes. In their invasion, destruction and vandalism of the empire in 1519 AD, in their ego and greed, the Spanish invaders sought to thoroughly loot the whole country, kill or enslave the entire population, and systematically destroy every trace of the culture in the name of Spain the Roman Catholic Church, and of course, gold? The gold that I'm interested in is it, it's, I think, was that, it might have been in the Graham series or this recently, it's like they, they now understand that they had like burnings of scrolls, thousands and thousands and thousands of scrolls. They'd chuck them into a massive pile and burn, it was like the Library of Alexandria of the mine. Of the yeah, South okay. American Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing we need to take into account as we delve into South America is since this has been written and the LIDAR scans mm-hmm. have been done, the population of South America, they estimate, is in the hundreds of millions now with yep. the amount of – they found that road that runs for 32 kilometres in a straight line, uh, all that stuff. So, yeah, we need to go into this with that mindset as well as he tells the story yeah, yeah whatever yeah. whatever history he's going to give us we need to multiply it in our minds because it was actually a much larger yes civilization exactly mm. all right so we ended on gold. the gold but just stop and think about that for a minute why gold gold has always been considered a prize throughout our entire history but it it is but a soft yellow metal of little practical use, yet it has always been considered worthy of invasion, war, or even murder to obtain. Few substances on earth can arouse more lust or greed in the hearts of men. Why? Why was gold, a metal for which there was no real use for in the ancient past, ever considered to be so valuable? It is soft and can be polished. It's great stuff for making pretty trinkets from, but it is virtually useless in regards to any practical application. It's much too soft to be used for items that would have been considered of value in the past, such as weapons or armor, or for use in building or industry, or really for anything but decoration. Of course, it has unique electrical properties, but would people in ancient times have known or needed that? Possibly. Maybe. How and why could gold have ever served any useful purpose to have been deemed so valuable and sought after in such remote and ancient times? The Aztecs used no form of money or metal tools. Yet when the Spanish arrived, 
they were astounded and amazed by the beauty and sheer volume of treasures the Indians possessed. When they arrived at Cuzco, they found a city that was quite literally covered with gold. Even the buildings, the complex contained a garden where the plants, birds, insects, and even a fountain were all fashioned from pure gold in intricate detail. The main temple had a courtyard in which there stood a field of maize and which every stalk was fashioned from silver and the ears of corn from pure gold. The yard contained an amazing 180,000 square feet of golden and silver corn. Every year, gold was brought by his subjects and paid in tribute to the king, but none was ever allowed to leave Cusco under pain of death. There in Cusco, it was held in storage for the gods to whom the people believed it actually belonged and who would one day return to claim it. Many of the buildings in Cusco were also draped with with decorated gold sheeting fashioned into elaborate plaques and fixed to the walls by silver nails. The nails that were removed from one temple alone in Cusco weighed in excess of 13,000 ounces of silver. During the subsequent looting of the civilization by the Spanish, in what can only be described as one of the greatest acts of cultural vandalism in our history, over a period of about 10 years, upwards of 11 million million ounces of golden artifacts were melted down and sent to Spain as gold bullion. Between 1519 and 1749, some 300 million ounces of gold were pillaged and removed from the country. I had no idea. I had no idea that's what the numbers were. Where is that gold now? Where's the gold, man? Where is that gold? Where is the gold? (laughs) Just someone tell us. It's okay. I just need to know where the gold is. Yeah, despite it sitting in a thing somewhere waiting for the fucking gods to return. Exactly. That's what's exactly what it's doing. <laughs> Yet, despite all of this vast wealth of precious metal, the civilizations of South America used no currency and remained completely unaware of the concept of money. And though master goldsmiths, they also possessed no knowledge of metal tools. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So without metal tools, how did they produce megalithic structures? How were they able to obtain such vast quantities of gold if they were unable to mine it? And why have there been found the traces of ancient mines in the region? If they were not mined by the Indians, then by whom were they made? What were the enigmatic sites of Cusco and Tiwanaco on the shores of Lake Titicaca with their myriad of underground tunnel systems used for, why were they built in such an inaccessible region? The answers to these questions still puzzle many scholars because the actual recorded accounts that have survived an extremely limited South American civilization was totally decimated within 10 years of the Spanish landing, except for possibly one or two strongholds the Spanish did not manage to find and much of the Mayan history and culture was recorded on the, elab- on the elaborate gold plaques and stelae 
that were stolen and removed by the Spanish who melted most of what they found into ingots for shipment back to Spain. Butz. There you go. Wow. Hand it over, mate. You can... Uh, there's the mouse. You can plunge balls deep. I've got you in deep, mate. I've, it is. I'll put the yeah. tip in. Yeah. It's your turn to finish it off. Let's go. Many papyrus skull... There you go. They've got to get it out of the way early. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Many papyrus skulls had also once existed, but the religious culture of the South American Indians was also was so different and so bizarre with its strange, sometimes even Christian beliefs, and conflicted with the Roman Catholic Church in so many ways that the very existence of the text and even the Mayan language itself was considered to be an abomination. Then the first Archbishop of Mexico is claimed to have burned tens of thousands of such scrolls in the 1500s. To the Catholic Spanish, the beliefs of the natives appeared in some horrible travesty of Christianity because the Mayan religious system did actually contain many elements that could be found in Christianity. But by the time of the Aztec rule, many of the new rites involving much more barbaric practices had also been introduced and the two opposing belief systems had become intertwined. The Spanish were also convinced that the megalithic structures of the civilization had undoubtedly been built by demons. The demons. And there were some priests who believed the devil himself had created the entire culture and religious system in a heinous mockery of Christianity that assured the pagan souls of the natives would be more effectively damned to an eternity in hell. Sorry, I just had to run away with that. Uh, Due to this attitude, Apart from the few temple inscriptions, today only four Mayan books remain. They were saved and smuggled away by an honest priest who could see the historical significance of the culture and the evil that had been brought had been wrought on the natives by his people in the name of his church. So, look, if... Your Christianity and you need something to be bad, it's made by the devil. Yes. Um, and what was the serpent's what was the translation of the serpent? The one who the, knows the secrets. one who knows secrets. Mm. We well, don't want that person. We that can't have him goddamn alchemist. You can't have supporting him. Running him. We can't have him running around. I can't can't tell people secrets, man. Can't unlock the code. Just not allowed to do that. <laughs> we are, but we're not supposed to. <laughs> These four books are called the Dresden Codex, the Paris Codex, the Madrid Codex, and the Grolier Codex. So how was it that Cortes and his men were able to destroy the Mayan Empire so completely and so effectively? It happened so quickly that it almost seemed that they had God on their side. And in a way, it could be said that they did, because in a simple case of mistaken identity, the Aztecs opened their doors and welcomed the murderous Spaniard invaders, Right in their midst as honoured guests and even held a mighty banquet in the honour of their arrival. The arrival of the Spanish conquistadors was perceived to be a great and long-awaited day by the Aztecs, and many people came to the banquet to greet and honour the visitors. But when the Spanish arrived at the Aztec city and saw the riches to be that adorned it, the cunning conquistadors placed armed guards on all the doors of the banquet hall and slaughtered the entire gathering of unarmed natives with sword, axe and musket and then brutally looted the city, showing no mercy to the inhabitants. 
One of the most brutal and merciless was a commander named Francisco Pizarro, who became almost obsessed with finding the mythical city of gold that the Spanish called El Dorado, City of the Golden Man. There are some fascinating and detailed tales regarding this golden king, but their inclusion in this book is unnecessary for this story. He talked about the Golden King a little while ago, didn't he? It was in the other in the other chapters. The story of the Spanish conquest is quite detailed and very tragic. To put it all in a greatly simplified nutshell, eventually through a series of ignoble events, the Spanish succeeded in taking the Aztec King Montezuma as hostage and demanded no less than a room full of gold to secure the king's release. A very large room, actually more like a hall. is <laughs> a room of gold. The people complied with their demands, but when the Spanish saw how easily the ransom was raised, they demanded more, and again his subjects brought the gold for the invaders. But no matter how much gold the people brought to secure the release of their king, the Spanish kept the king imprisoned and continued demanding more. In fact, so much that they earned the nickname the Gold Eaters from the natives who felt certain the Spanish must use the yellow metal for food. So great was their need for it. I mean, isn't that, I mean, you hear that story again, that it's the the, the red wedding, the you know what I mean? Like this, it get over and over again. Invite the nobles to a hall. Let's have a banquet in peace. And uh, yeah, then bar the doors and set it on fire. Mm, it's a story that echoes mm. through the ages. And the, and the, yeah, the gold eaters. I remember that. I remember the gold eater term. Yeah. yeah. When it became obvious to them that the Spanish would never free their king due to the Due to the Spanish lust for more gold, the Aztecs gathered all their remaining treasures and hid them away in a secret place where it all stays hidden and still undiscovered to this day. Montezuma was eventually beheaded by the conquistadors, even after the ransom was paid many times over, and it is likely that it was never Cortes's intention to release him. But why did the poor Aztecs welcome the ruthless and gold-hungry Spanish so freely and openly into their midst and comply so readily with their ruthless demands? It's because the very day the Cortes arrived on their shores, it was a very significant date in the very significant year. In reality, they were actually already expecting a long-anticipated visit from someone else. The Luck of Cortes The ancient lands of South America's talk of a visitor that had once came to their shores the exact date and arrival of this mysterious stranger has been heavily debated many scholars believe it to have been most likely sometime after 500 bc but there is other evidence to suggest it may have been great great deal earlier than that what about eleven thousand six hundred years ago i reckon the visitor is described as a man bearded and fair-skinned who dressed in flowing garments marked all over with crosses the legends called him Quetzalcoatl and described him as a god of learning and life, a great leader and teacher of infinite wisdom. One legend has it that Quetzalcoatl came to their shores on a raft of feathered serpents that was drawn by clouds and later disappeared on such a raft, saying to them that upon his departure that he would return one day to reclaim his throne and depose his enemies. The name Quetzalcoatl translates into plumed serpent. Another variation of the story that Graham, the graphics they used for Quetzalcoatl in that series were pretty cool. Quetzalcoatl was said to have shown them how to plant corn and grow crops, crop, crops, crops, something which greatly changed their quality of life. They say he taught them writing in the calendar. It was Quetzalcoatl, say the Mayans, 
who taught them to build, and it was he who constructed their wondrous megalithic structures. He's described by them as the author of all activities that are beneficial to man, a person of great wisdom who lived by a strict moral code, forsaking all intoxicating and carnal pleasures. It's a bit of a Jesus myth in there somewhere. The reasons for his departure are unclear. One legend tells that one day Quetzalcoatl was tricked into acts of lewdness by a rival who had disguised as an intoxicating potion as a medicine and convinced him to drink plenty of draught. When he awoke the next day to find he was he had done what he had done, he was greatly shamed by his actions and left the Mayan shores, but vowed one day to return and reclaim his kingship. So he got drunk and he left. That's a big night. It's we've, big, all, we've all had one of those. You yeah, wake yeah. up the next day and you're like, fuck, what have I done? I'm going I'm, I'm to leave here and never come back. Yeah. That's how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> Another legend holds that he was needed elsewhere and sailed away northward and that there are others giving various reasons as to why he left. For whatever the reason, Quetzalcoatl eventually left South America, but upon his departure, he said to the Mayans, that he would return to their shores one day and told them to look after his arrival on the day of the nine wind, April 22nd, in the year of the reed. A reed year occurs once every 52 years in the Mayan calendar. Most legends say that when Quetzalcoatl left on his raft of feathered serpents, he sailed back to his home, a land that lay to the north, while his followers shot flaming arrows into the air to mark their way as he left, leaving fiery cross-like patterns in the sky. Some stories say that he flashed into the heavens to become the morning star. Oh, there you go. When Cortes arrived on those same shores in 1519, it was it was in the year of the reed. And not only that, it was April 22nd, the very day Quetzalcoatl was predicted to return. On that most fateful of I mean, timing? You know what I mean? Yeah, on impeccable. A, impeccable. Montezuma's scouts had hastily run to deliver news to him that the centuries along their eastern coast had seen floating palaces propelled by billowing white clouds arriving at their shores in the morning mists. The clouds had large fire-red crosses on them, and flames erupted from the bellies of the palaces, followed by the sounds of roaring thunder. They told the king that when the palaces had at last come to land, all kinds of strange creatures had emerged from their bellies, some half-man and half-metal, others with six legs and two heads, some with strange sticks that poured fire and death, and with them were huge savage beasts that foamed at the mouth. Yet all these creatures paid homage to one figure that stood in the centre, a man all clad in metal, bearded and fair-skinned. It could only be Quetzalcoatl. Imagine, I, I, like, I, I had a thought a little while ago, it's a little bit off topic, however... Armour would have been heavy, man. It would have been a real pain to operate in a metal suit. Have you ever worn, what's it called? Oh, man. What's the chain? Chain link. Chain, chain link. Oh, yeah, I've worn chain mail. Yeah. yeah, that's quite, that's like heavy. That's like, a full suit's like 20 kilo. Mm -hmm. You think sometimes that was then underneath. Underneath, underneath the actual. Underneath plate yeah. armour. Yeah. So, crazy, yeah, man, it that was a very heavy, like, you watch those dudes that fight with swords and shit now, yeah. it's not easy. No, definitely not. But the Mayans had never seen sailing ships, cannons, guns, and men in armour on horseback before. 
To the minds, a man on a horse may well appear at first to be a creature with six legs and two heads, one that foamed at the mouth. They believe that such amazing things could only possibly mean the return of their great teacher and leader, and they were very anxious not to offend him and welcome him in a manner befitting such a great one. Montezuma itself, himself was quite apprehensive about the return of Quetzalcoatl because when he had left, he had sworn to take vengeance on those who had betrayed him, and since his departure, the minds had turned from his teachings somewhat and begun barbaric practices and even human sacrifices were now commonplace. Montezuma knew that Quetzalcoatl would be greatly angered by such activity and expected him to exact retribution. So they, they expected him to come bring in the heat. Yeah. So they were... It all played out like, they tr- and, and they'd want to appease that. Mm-hmm. Hence their demeanor, mm-hmm. as well as also thinking it's the great. Yeah, not fighting bearded. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, whatever's happening, we deserve sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. When Cortez arrived, the mines hastily presented him with the crown of Quetzalcoatl, which was a huge plumed and golden headdress, and they bowed before him. The decorative headdress was immediately sent back to Spain and can still be found today in the Spanish Museum. We need to look that up. Had it not been the 22nd of April on a read year, perhaps more precautions would have been taken in approaching the strangers, but the minds were unwilling to appear rude to a god. Never could the poor Maya have been more sadly mistaken to their peril, ruin, and death. So who exactly was Quetzalcoatl in this ancient and most mysterious of benefactors? Numerous legends tell us of a person named Manco Cupac, who was the legendary founder of South American civilization. The event is said to have begun with a ceremony on Lake Titicaca and the presentation of Quetzalcoatl Veracocha of a golden wand to Manco Cupac, who was then told to go forth and found the civilization. This legend indicates that Quetzalcoatl did not just arrive to him and improve the mind civilization, he was there at its inception. In fact, this legend even suggests that the entire thing was probably Quetzalcoatl's idea in the first place. There has always been a great deal of confusion as to the actual identity of this enigmatic teacher of the minds and much argument over who Quetzalcoatl really was or even whether he was a real figure at all. However, it is reasonable to assume that he was indeed an actual character because of the detailed descriptions of him that were well preserved in Mayan traditions. It's all it's unlikely that the Mayans would have fabricated a pale skinned, bearded god of Western appearance if they had not actually once seen a person fitting that description, as it is completely contrary to the appearance of the dark skinned and beardless Mayans. There also exists a stele depicting Quetzalcoatl. The relief clearly depicts a bearded person of a Western appearance. There is also a character of extremely similar features that is described in many other South American cultures. All of these characters are pale-skinned and bearded, all dress in long, flowing, robe-like garments, and are said to have appeared suddenly, imparted great knowledge and wisdom on the civilizations they visited and then departed. In all instances, the man was said to be travelling north when he departed. All of these legends associate the figure with feathered serpents in some way. The same character has been known as Quetzalcoatl in Cholula, Votan in Chipapas, Chiapas, Wixi Piica in Oaxaca, 
uh, Viracocha in Peru, Bohica in Colombia, Zama in Cucuclan, Cucuclan in the Yucatan, Sume and Payetome in Brazil, and Gucumats in Guatemala. That was a mouthful. The similarities in the stories from all these places give weight to the very real possibility that such a person did actually once exist. Did was it one person, or we again? Like, are we talking about survivors of a civilization that have gone out and they're all just bearded men? You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred um, percent. One early and very well researched article that contains some quite well reasoned insights into Quetzalcoatl was written by a man named Dominic Daly. The article was first published in a November issue of American Antiquarian in 1880 and then later reprinted reprinted in The Unexplained by William Corliss and again in Lost Cities of North and Central America, a very informative book by David Hatcher Childress. In In this article, Daly had this to say, the Mexicans had preserved a minute and apparently an accurate description of the personal appearance of his habits of Quetzalcoatl. He was a white man, advanced in years, tall in stature. His forehead was broad. He had a large black beard and black hair. He is described in dressing in a long garment over which there is a mantle marked with crosses. This is a description that was preserved for centuries in the traditions of a people who had no intercourse with or knowledge of Europe. <laughs> what had to put intercourse in there? Well, who had never seen a white man and who were themselves dark-skinned but with few scanty hairs on the skin to represent a beard. It is therefore difficult to suppose that this curiously accurate portraiture of Quetzalcoatl as an early European ecclesiastic was a mere invention in all parts, a mere fable which happened to hit on every particular characteristic of such an individual. Nor is it easy to understand why the early Mexicans would have been at pains to invent a messiah of so different to themselves with such peculiar attributes. Yet despite destructive law, wars, revolutions and invasions, in spite of the breaking up and dispersal of tribes and nations, the traditions of Quetzalcoatl and the account of his personal peculiarities survived among the people until the days of the Spanish invasion. Enough remained of the teachings of Quetzalcoatl to impress the Spaniards of the 16th century with the belief that he must have been a native of Europe. They found that many of the religious beliefs of the Mexicans bore an unaccountable resemblance to those of Christians, because the story's the story, man. The Spanish ecclesiastics. What is that? Ecclesiastics. Ecclesia. Thanks, man. That's all right, man. Ecclesiastics. I couldn't pick that one up. Ecclesiastics. That's the only thing I've ever said that word in my life. Really? No. I don't know where I've heard it. Yeah. In particular, we're astounded by what they saw and knew not what to make of it. Some of them supposed that St. Thomas, the apostle of India, had been in the country and imparted a knowledge of Christianity to the people. Others with pious horror and in mental bewilderment declared that the evil one himself had set up a travesty of the religion of Christ for the more effectual damning of the souls of the pagan Mexicans. I mean, you've got to justify slaughtering people, you know. Ah, it's in the name of the real God. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. devil... The devil because the devil it. was in them. Mm. The religion of the Mexicans, and the, as the Spanish found, it was in truth an amazing and most unnatural combination of what appeared to be Christian beliefs and Christian virtues and morality with the bloody rites 
and idolatrous practices of pagan barbarians. The mystery was soon explained to the Spaniards by the Mexicans themselves. The milder part of the Mexican religion was that the Quetzalcoatl had taught them. He had taught, the, taught it to the Toltecs, a people who had ruled Mexico for some centuries before the arrival of the Spaniards. The Aztecs were in possession of power when the Spaniards came, and it was they who introduced them, that part of the Mexican religion was which that such a strong contrast believed Contrast to the, 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 the bloody hell. The Aztecs were in possession of power when the Spaniards came, and it was the, they who introduced that part of the Mexican religion, which was in such strong contrast to the religion established by Quetzalcoatl. And there he is, old Quetzalcoatl himself. Doesn't necessarily look European to me. No, not really. No. It's not that anyway. It could almost be Mongolian. Yeah. It's got some strong features there. Strong jawline, stuff like that, the wide jawline. I mean, it's... The rocket clock has gone off again, so you're back with Mac Attack on the mic. Mac Attack. Here we go. So, la, 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 la. Come on, mouse, work for me. Here we go. Heading straight back in. The Mexicans believed in an un in a universal deluge from which only one family, that of Coxcox, escaped. Nevertheless, and inconsistently enough with this, they also spoke of a race of wicked giants who had survived the flood, built a pyramid in order to reach clouds. But Stop it. the gods frustrated their designs and rained fire down upon it. Whether due to teachings or to accidental coincidence, it is certain that the Mexicans held many point of belief in common with the Christians. They believed in the Trinity, the Incarnation, and apparently the Redemption. So who was this mysterious teacher? There are many who have speculated that he was indeed an early Christian missionary, and some who have been dared to suggest that it may have even been Christ himself during one of his journeys. Such people have pointed to the similarities in the phonetic rendering of the two, named, two names, Quetzalcoatl, Jesus Christ. According to most records, Jesus traveled extensively in the years prior to his ministry, visiting among other places Egypt, Tibet, and India to study with the yogis. It has it it has even quite often been speculated that he did not in fact die on the cross and continued his travels after the resurrection. Such an idea was explored in Robert Bavell's excellent book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and more recently in The Da Vinci Code. As repellent as the idea may be to some people, it does, not, it does actually have some merit when one considers the events surrounding the crucifixion as they have been presented to us in Lost Cities of North and Central America by David Hatcher Childress, made some striking observations. Now, he comments, The crucifixion of Jesus was a curious event. A case can be made that he was not meant to die on the cross. It was customary in Roman times to break the legs and arms of persons who had died on the cross, usually by starvation or by suffocation from the ribcage pressing down on the lungs. 
it was also customary for all prisoners to be taken down from their crosses just prior to the Sabbath, which starts on Friday at dusk. Jesus was nailed to the cross in the early afternoon of a Friday and taken down just before dusk, having been crucified for as little as four or five hours, during which time he gave up the ghost. Is that where that comes from? It might be. Maybe. It is rather remarkable that a person with the vitality and yogic powers of Jesus would die within a few hours on a cross when most criminals took several days to die. Persons are crucified every year in such diverse places as the Philippines and Mexico in commemoration of the event, all of them coming through quite safely. Crucifixion does not kill a person in four hours. It seems more possible that Jesus, who had undoubtedly studied certain forms of yoga, was able to go into an altered state of consciousness, a deep mental state where he would appear dead to any person, including a doctor. Such states are not uncommon and generally known as catalepsy, and even today, yogis in the Himalayas and elsewhere are still for performing such feats. Well, Wim Hof is uh, yep, pretty good absolutely. at uh, dropping his heart rate yeah, yeah, right, as yeah. well. The crucifixion of Jesus is a remarkable affair and fraught with interesting contradictions and interpretations. It is worth noting that when Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why how hast you... I've got yours. Yeah. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was drawing attention to the 22nd Psalm at the time. It was common for scholars to refer to a whole verse by quoting the first line. As everyone knew the Old Testament by heart, the 22nd Psalm, written by King David, goes on to say in the 16th verse... Yeah, but the book wasn't written when he was crucified. No, the the original testament was. The, was it? Yes, but the... The book of the, the... The New Testament, the Old Testament was, the New Testament wasn't. The New Testament is about Jesus and his life. Okay. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my raiment, they cast lots. But thou, Lord, be not far off. Therefore, it would appear that Jesus was not in despair but was instead drawing attention to the 22nd Psalm as a prophecy of the terrible wrong that has, that was being committed against him. Taken down from the cross at dusk, Jesus appeared to be dead. His mother Mary and Joseph of Arimathea stood by to claim the body, which was not pulverized, i.e. he had, his bo- had its bones broken as was the Roman tradition. Instead, they wrapped the body in a shroud after they had covered it with aloe sap, known for its natural healing qualities. Jesus had been pierced in the side by a spear and was bleeding, which is rather suspicious since a dead person does not bleed after his heart has stopped. The possibility that Jesus survived the crucifixion seems a credible one. In fact, what is incredible 
is that someone with the vitality and personal power of Jesus would have died on the cross in such a short time. More likely, he could have lasted many days, probably outliving common criminals. So with all this being the case, what actually did happen to Jesus after the crucifixion? Many claim there is evidence to suggest that Quetzalcoatl may well have been Jesus. Others have speculated that it may also have been the Irish saint, St. Brendan, or that possibly the two were travelling together, as Quetzalcoatl did not travel alone, but in fact have an entourage of sorts. There are also rock carvings and stelae that exist depicting a South American man wearing an earring sporting a Christian Star of David. Could this be a coincidence? Or could it be something more? The Star of David is just a symbol, though, and it's one of the common symbols that's found everywhere. Well, and the Star of David is is uh, commonly, like, Jewish. Yeah, that's their necklace, isn't it? The Star of David. Yeah. yeah. Yep. In a further deepening of the mystery, there is still other evidence to suggest that Quetzalcoatl may well have had an Egyptian connection. In the fingerprints of the gods, the author, Graham Hancock, suggests the figure was the Egyptian deity Osiris, who was also reported to have made many peregrinations in order to impart what wisdom he could on the less fortunate races. This is quite interesting because because there have often been rumours in South American tales the Quetzalcoatl never returned as promised because he was, in fact, brutally killed by his brother. In the stories we find pertaining to Osiris, we find that he is re- he is reported to have travelled widely doing the very things that Quetzalcoatl is said to have done. Only upon his return to Egypt, which also lies in a northerly direction from the Mayan cities, he was killed and dismembered by his jealous brother Seth. Yeah, it's the same story. It does very much look like the Star of David in that picture. But again, it's a common symbol, the, the double triangle. That's not a yeah commonly known as a Jewish symbol these days. However, with the 32 symbols that echo across, echo across the globe, that is one yeah. of them that we find everywhere. The information is all very interesting, but it does not give any concrete clues as to who Quetzalcoatl actually was or any clues as to the real identity of Manco Capac. But what are we to make of the South American race themselves? In fact, what about all the tribal races of the Americas? Where did they originate? Where else in the world can be found a race of darker-skinned, beardless humans? Lack of facial hair is a genetic trait that is completely unique to the races of the Americas, And this fact in itself can provide us with an important clue to these questions. If we now return to biblical accounts, we are told in Genesis that following the death of Abel, God placed a mark on Cain so that he and his descendants would always be known from other races. This mark of Cain has always been colorfully depicted by institutions such as Hollywood as being in the nature of a tattoo on his forehead. Such an idea is, of course, extremely unlikely, 
as any type of physical mark would never have sufficed to also deal with his descendants. It is therefore much more reasonable to assume that if such a mark was indeed placed upon a man and his descendants, then it would have been a genetic mark that would therefore have been passed on to his descendants via his genes, such as a mark could well be the inability to grow facial hair. And if you think about that, that would be the mark because the mark of wisdom is what is the bearded man always has been. We've said that for years. You're going to mark someone. I don't know, your your line will no longer be able to grow facial hair, so you'll never be able to attain the wisdom that comes with that. And you'll... You'll never be able to be seen as that either. Yeah. You'll yeah. never be able to join us in that in that realm. Yeah, you'll always be known because you can't, you know, because again, what's as every the guy? Babe, the, they're the baby-faced assassins. That's yeah. it, because they've they got nothing. That's a good. That's that's a nice. That's cool. That's and it cool. does it does in, in genetic modification the the DNA strand that we thought about earlier with the Sumerians. Like, yeah, no, hundred percent. That's interesting. That is very very interesting. It is quite noteworthy that despite the numerous ge- genetic differences between the Caucasian, Negroid, Mongoloid, and Oriental races, the only people to be found anywhere in the world that lack facial hair are the tribes of the Americas. Oh, the Orientals aren't known for their or some of the, oh, they can. not the best, no. but that some of them some of them can. can. In fact, in fact, there was I'm pretty sure there's like like an indigenous tribe to Japan, like in the north. They yeah. have like wicked beards. Yes. Like there's it's it's a yeah, it's a weird like section. Mm. But yeah, let's say across the board, like not the not the thickest of facial hairs. No. Okay, sorry, I was just finding where I was. The Bible informs us that Cain was given a mark by God and then cast out to wander in distant lands. We are also informed that when Cain left, he built a new city, which also indicates he took people with him when he left. This, in turn, suggests that the biblical creation of Adam was not referring to creation of just one man and one woman, but in fact to the creation of the race of Adam, mm. the creation of the Adam, the Adamu, the race we are told of in Sumerian texts. It is this author's opinion and the opinion of many others that the tribes of the Americas are indeed the descendants of the biblical Cain. The ten lost tribes of Israel spoken of in biblical texts and that after the deluge of circa 11,500 BC, it was one of Cain's surviving descendants who became the enigmatic Manko Kapak. I am also of the opinion that Quetzalcoatl was in reality none other than the actual Egyptian deity known to us as Thoth, the god of science and numbers, also known as Hermes in Greek, and the Sumerian god, Ningish Zida, brother of Ra Marduk, and son of the great god of science known in Sumer as Anki, in Egypt as Ptah, and biblical tales as the serpent. And in fact, as we shall see, the Egyptian and Sumerian connections to the ancient civilizations of South America can be readily proven. 
Where are we at, mate? Well, there you go. That's the end. Then on to the next chapter, part three. Part analysis. three, analysis. Okay. Oh, my shit. We're, I'm freaking out a little bit. We're, I kind of want to scrub, uh, but no. I'm like, I'm no, like, we can't. Ah, I want to look. I want to look. We can't. Chapter eleven, creation connections. Don't do it. Don't no, do it. Don't no. Do it. no, no, we're, we're not okay. going to. We're okay. That's look, as far I'm, as we're going. I'm very. I'm happy with our progress tonight, mate. We, we have fucking given the people what they deserve. They, we knuckled down. We, we punched it out. We punched it out. And what did we? I mean, there's a lot to take away from tonight. All I'm now, I'm just, what this book is doing is continuing to add layers. Well, I'm, I'm loving the way detail. he's connecting the dots in, in his, through his perspective. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really good. I like it. And, it, you know, it's, it's up there with a lot of, a lot of other information, a lot of other theories and mm-hmm. a lot of other thought experiments that have, that have been written down in mm-hmm. book form over the, over the years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he pays homage to to a lot of the ones that are still massive now. Mm, that's right. That's right. I mean, I was thinking too that with Graham's um, with Graham's book, Magicians of the Gods, that wasn't written when this was out, right? So this that put another couple of layers on the information as well. What are you doing there, man? Just getting the uh, getting the, the floating controls back. Uh, hello, floating controls. Um, just going to stop share there because I think look. I don't know where to start as far as how, what are we discussed about what we learned tonight? More just layers of information, layers of information. And again, you know, the whole Baalbek spaceport thing, it kind of makes sense, right? What are you building such a big platform for? Mm. You know, I mean, if you think. Well, it gives, it gives an explanation to what that could possibly have been, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which which other theories still relay it as a temple, mm. which they, you know, the temple was just like the the uh, rocket ship launch site yeah. sort of thing. So it's all keeping it well within uh, things that have already been surmised. I was thinking about um, Stargates as well. Yep. As a, you know, Stargates platforms. I mean, there's, that's a lot of those esoteric stories echo of that. And, yeah, what if it's what if it's true? Mm. I mean, I, that genetic marker thing that really came home to me. That was interesting. Yeah, because uh, it makes sense. It it's does. Very make obvious. Sense. It's a very obvious marker. It was a mark on his face. Mm-hmm. So you just you'll never be able to reach the wisdom that comes with being so the simple. bearded one. It's so simple. Why did we have to create? Like you said, why did we have to create a mark on the forehead? Mm. And and how does that get tra- get transferred down the line? Mm. It's very difficult, but mm. to be beardless, it's an excellent marker. It's an excellent it's marker. It makes complete sense. Well, mate, I think we might just wrap it up there. I'm, I don't have, uh, there's a lot to be learned. I think maybe what we do, considering this is our new path forward, we review this one before the next one and we talk about it in review because we just had too much information. I've got too much information in my head right now to, form an analysis of what yeah, we learned 100%. tonight. Yep. So maybe we review and do a quick five minute review instead of an article at the start of the next episode as to like lessons. What do you reckon about that? We could do that. It's not a bad idea. I'm not going to promise anything, but it I like it. 
<laughs> we'll uh, tentatively book that one in. Tentatively, uh, we'll put a pin in it and we'll yeah, come back around. Definitely, circle back around. Circle back around, put a pin in it, uh, and, and moving forward, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll make sure we do it properly. Uh, all right, man. Well, thanks very much. Awesome. I, I enjoyed that. Let's let's look. Let's wrap this up. We gonna the thing is if we do what we do. Oh, there you go. Oh. There's the there's the button. If we do another three of these, the book would be done. And that's I think that should be the goal, my friend. Mm. Let's bring this thing home quickly. Mm. Let's um wrap it up because we've got so much more to move on to. I know, I know. It's stacking up behind us. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Awesome, dude. Really appreciate it. Till next time. In this life and the next. Be kind, be cool. Cheers. Do you want to go again? Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you've been here before. No surprises settle the score. I know the darkness deep inside. Reckless rage. through I know you I know you